Hey everybody, it's Drew from Sleep With Me, and I'm believe it or not, I'm live here uh, from Golden Gate Park, recorded live, uh, and I've got a little announcement. We're teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you two exclusive episodes. Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moments from tons of podcasts and creates playlist clips so you can try a bunch of shows out and find something new to love. Each playlist has its own topic or theme. You could try out the Music Decoded playlist with clips all about unpacking and analyzing music, uh, or Slice of Life, which is all about the crazy or incredible things that happen to everyday people. Also, Spoke has fun, exclusive content from Farrell. And that's why I'm here live at Golden Gate Park. I just concluded uh, recording one of these episodes that's only going to be available exclusively on Spoke. I'm lying here in the grass. Uh, you definitely do not want to miss these special episodes. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of Sleep With Me's exclusive Spoke episodes. You can find them all at Spoke.com slash sleep with me that's spoke.com slash sleep with me check it out uh and i'll see you in golden gate park at stowe lake bye guys finding quality denim jeans is tough and to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh almost impossible but at distilled spelled d-s-t-l-d you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use a promo code FERAL and check out and get it a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super-duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Hello and welcome to another installment of Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I am obviously Matt Dwyer. Uh, wouldn't it be great if I wasn't and this was just the name of the show? It was just like, welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Uh, we've uh, grabbed him, put him in a bag, and we're making him squirm around in that bag while I, John Fetzel, hosts the show. But it's not. It's it's me, Matt Dwyer, and uh, I'm on uh, cold medicine, and uh, like uh, just in a real spacey sort of uh, mindset. This uh, show, which is maybe that kind of fits, because uh, today we're going to be talking to uh, two marijuana defense lawyers, uh, and uh, it's going to be really interesting. They have a lot of really fascinating, awesome things to say, uh, and uh, I keep. Trying to smoke marijuana, uh, my friend Duncan Trussell recently was encouraging me. He said that uh, it would help me work through some of my uh, childhood uh, uh, traumas because I have a lot of, uh, we, we could say, muscle memory from a very... I had a very traumatic uh, childhood, which is also something I like to bring up when I'm in bars talking to women. You talk about, you know, your dad's abuse and you just get a distant look in your eye and uh, and a tear rolling. And it's pretty much a sure shot for the uh, the old uh, pity fuck there. But um, so recently I've been trying to actually smoke marijuana and it just 
every at first it's always great and i was uh i was listening to some ravi shankar <laughs> records while i was smoking marijuana and uh, just try, trying to stretch and be groovy and then inevitably i just get some sort of uh, really weird negative panic attack like i'll start you know i'll feel pretty good about smoking weed and then i'll like notice a pain in my shoulder and then in my crazy neurotic brain slowly the next thing i know is like i'm like i have cancer no i just clearly i have to take better care of myself and uh, stop eating red meat and this uh, pain in my shoulder is uh, colon cancer that had jumped from the, all the red meat i eat into my shoulder so that's why i can't uh, smoke marijuana it just makes me uh, kind of uh, crazy and uh, yeah you know and I, I've been smoking it since uh, on and off for since I was in the fifth grade so you think maybe at some point I'd be like hey maybe uh, stop trying Dwyer it's just not your your drug of choice and I've believe me I've tried enough to uh, know which would be my drug of choice um, get a lot of the coke started cocaine in high school people what you're learning about me is I achieve early smoke weed early have a cocaine addiction early I really just know how to attack life and say yes I'm not wasting any time I'm not wasting I'm not gonna have a coke addiction at 30 I'm doing it at 15 fuck you that's who I am um, but then I you know one day we were doing coke um, that we scored off the uh, corner st- streets in uh, Wicker Park in Chicago and we were doing it at my friend's house and we decided to sell the stereo uh, for more drugs and I was like mm, this is where I get off on on this one this is where I stop and then I moved on to uh, uh, mushrooms and LSD which is uh, actually I still think everybody should probably try those if there's any kid listeners out there uh, my friend and I used to, uh, we used to lock ourselves in his basement in the pitch black and do Carlos Castaneda uh, exercises, and uh, we would try to find the void, and I don't mean to uh, brag or anything, but um, I found the void, everybody, and it's in a basement in Rogers Park on the north side of Chicago, so if you're looking for the void... Go to Rogers Park, where there's also some really good Indian restaurants. So you can you can find the void. You're going to be famished from finding it, and then you fill up on uh, some Indian food. You know, get some of them potatoes and peas that them the Indian people like so much. And yeah, that's that. So uh, that's uh, we're going to start off the show. I just want to thank you very much um, for listening. It means a lot. Uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes and write a review because if you write a review that uh, will and make it a good review uh, that helps me generate more listeners and all that stuff uh, follow us on uh, Twitter and Facebook uh, feralaudio.com is uh, the website so just follow uh, Feral Audio on Twitter and Facebook like us follow us keep listening tell your friends about our show um, and uh, just do it god damn it because I need it I need people to listen to me and affirm my existence otherwise I'll go back into that void and I'll never come back in that basement there in Rogers Park. Um, so let's please uh, welcome uh, our, our guests for today, uh, Raza Lawrence and Allison Margolin, marijuana defense lawyers. Right, let's uh, welcome our uh, guests for today, Raza Lawrence and Allison Margolin, who are marijuana defense lawyers. Is that correct? That's correct. We do all criminal defense and a little bit of civil litigation, but our focus and one of our passions is any cases involving marijuana, whether that's cultivation, distribution, simple possession, but we 
we like to do cases involving the California's medical marijuana laws. What now? How did you? Uh, how did this sort of come about? Where, like, I mean, you, when you went to law school, were you like, "Hey, I'm going to do uh, be a weed guy," or like, what was the process of that happening? Well, I'd always wanted to get into the courtroom, and I think as far as attorneys go, criminal lawyers are really the only ones who are going to court on a consistent basis and doing trials and just just dealing with the. Uh, actually litigating cases. I started out doing some civil litigation. That was a lot more sitting at a desk, pouring through pages and pages of documents and just just rarely going to court. So criminal litigation, I always wanted to get into just for the courtroom experience, but also just one of my passions has always been civil civil liberties and uh, the war on drugs and trying to do something that would make a difference to try and reform those areas. Yeah, the war on drugs. We could thank, uh, what, the Reagans for the uh, war on drugs? One of our best presidents ever, by the way, because not only did he start the war on drugs, but he also denied AIDS, which was uh, really awesome of him, and made ketchup a vegetable. So he's a really great president and single-handedly took down communism. Really amazing that one guy, just in one day, suddenly took down communism. Am I right? I'm being facetious. I hope you all know that, because <laughs> I don't like Reagan, and I'm about as lefto as it gets. Or, Allison, are you a big uh, Reagan fan? No, no. Well, he was a good actor, though. Let's give him that, right? No, he wasn't. No, I don't know. I don't watch Reagan movies. <laughs> you know, he was almost in Casablanca. Did a little factoid. And then, thank God, that would have been like a piece of shit. It, went, it could have been, you know, it was one of the greatest movies. Could have been like a shitty, fucking awful movie. Interesting how... And, you know, we wouldn't have... Uh, he also cut the, the uh, what is it, the re- bank regulations. Really a great president when people say Reagan was great. Well, I guess from our pers- um, from the perspective of a criminal lawyer, one of the most horrible things he did was, you know, the cutting of funding for all the mental institutions and a lot of the psychiatric services. That's right. Unfortunately, those are people who end up, you know, on the street and committing small offenses that could lead them to becoming institutionalized. Yeah, he also ironically cut... Um, Alzheimer's funding and then what did he end up with Alzheimer's that's what you call instant karma (laughs) I know in terms of civil liberties issues there were also a lot of people before that era who were held against their will in mental institutions who weren't really a danger to themselves or anyone else and I think around that time they loosened the standards on institutionalizing people against their will so the result was there's a lot of crazy people schizophrenics and so forth out in the street now who wouldn't have been back then but who are essentially prisoners back then against their will. Is that still happening to a degree? I think it was sometime during the Reagan administration when they they loosened those standards. So they liberated a lot of people who are essentially prisoners, but who have various mental problems that causes them to end up in places like Skid Row. Yeah, I know. There was that big thing where they were just dumping them in downtown. And I work downtown a lot, and you'll see... Like, there was a period like five or six years ago, you'd see guys walking around in hospital those weird things where your ass hangs out just and and you're just like how does this and then they actually got guys on tape like taking them out of a van and just being like like they were like raccoons or something like be free well when i was in college i did an internship for the aclu actually and a lot of what i did was fielding calls and letters from people who thought they had a case the acl might take aclu might take up but a big chunk of the cases we had were people from mental institutions who were essentially saying they were being held because of their beliefs or a lot of them seemed very crazy and thought there were black helicopters after them but a lot of them truly believed that they were essentially being 
political prisoners or prisoners being held against their will and that they weren't in fact a danger to anyone else. So that, that is a legitimate issue, I think, to, to balance out against funding for psychiatric services. Right. Now, are things like the Rockefeller law, is that still in effect? And isn't that, wasn't that sort of... Well, that Rockefeller law, is like that's part of the New York... That doesn't. That's not a cross-country thing, because I know there's... No, that's like the New York drug. That's kind of the name, I think, for the New York drug laws um, that are also supposedly relatively draconian. I don't know what how they compare to ours, but... New York, I think, we've had cases, one case recently, where a client of ours was being extradited to New York for some offenses that allegedly happened there, and they are very draconian, very harsh laws that have very long sentences in New York compared to the rest of the country for whatever reason that is. Yeah, because in the 80s, you could get you could get a serious fucking sentence for just like a few, like nothing, right? Correct? Like a small amount of drugs on you? In New York? In anywhere. I know because my brother was a, he used to deal coke. <laughs> so I have a upfront. I mean, I'm not really sure how it's, I don't really know how it's played out. Um, I think that in New York, one of the big differences between there and here, I think is that they have the more discretion than the courts, even though if they have, um, you know, potentially relatively long exposures, I think there's more more discretion, whereas here, a lot of the sentences for drug crimes are affected if, per, if people have, like, strikes, priors, mm-hmm. and if they have any type of, like, record that involves anything anything serious or violent here, even if they have a current drug case, it can really affect the way, what your exposure is and how much time you do. And I think that's something that the rest of the country doesn't really have a law that's as severe or unfair as that law. In the state of California. Right, because, you know, it's where your prior conduct, even if you've done substantial time for it, people don't realize that in California, if you have one prior strike, meaning you could have committed a residential burglary, that's like the most minor of the strikes, and you pick up a, let's say, transportation of crack cocaine, your exposure is, instead it could be two to five years without the strike, and with the strike it's like four to ten years at 80%. So that's really how... You know, people end up in doing serious time and kind of how our institutions are filled here is by people who have prior records repeatedly getting punished for the same thing, even though their current crime is not is not serious or not violent. The, the reality in California, a lot of people who just have simple drug cases who don't have a prior record, you're not going to be doing most like a lot of time in custody. But a real sentencing issue that we deal with frequently is in federal court, they have mandatory minimums that are very strict. And especially a lot of our clients who are involved in medical marijuana dispensaries or cultivation sites for dispensaries, some of them are getting these federal cases filed against them where they're facing 10-year mandatory minimums. And these are basically good family people who thought they were running a dispensary for patients and doing everything they needed to under state law. And a lot of them were also relying on candidate Obama's statements when he was running that he was going to stop going after medical marijuana dispensaries, as well as a memorandum that he uh, issued through his uh, attorney general after he came into office saying they're not going to go after medical marijuana operations that comply with state law. But what's happened is they've just completely reversed course and prosecuted some of these people very vigorously with these mandatory minimums. Now, why is that? And it doesn't seem, am I nuts or are we not hearing about this a lot? About this happening? And like, I mean, you hear a little bit. You hear there's uh, within the sort of marijuana subculture, there's a lot of anger and frustration, I think, over Obama. And some people feel betrayed, I think, from statements he was making that, that they thought meant that he was coming to their side. But once he became elected, he acted very differently. So, Wait a minute. A politician said one thing and did another? I find this very... <laughs> well, it's politics as usual, I think. I know he was recently giving an interview to, I think it was Rolling Stone Madison, magazine, where he was asked questions about 
why are you cracking down on dispensaries and what his justification was that they were only going after places that weren't just providing marijuana to patients, but were also providing to recreational users. And we've dealt with these cases and that's just a flat out lie. These are cases, they're medical marijuana dispensaries that are only giving to patients with doctor's recommendations. And I think that even the federal government now is forced to resort to misinformation and lying about why they're going after these cases, the nature of these cases. And I don't know why there's such a, a need for them to continue to prosecute these, whether it's just inertia or whether there's some type of underlying goal they have. It's it's a mystery to me. And it's all like, because I know like in the state of California, marijuana is pretty much legal. I'm not right. I mean, definitely we, not. Um, that's like kind of the, or the well, that's what I mean, the, let's put it this way. The possession and if you're just a marijuana user, Living in California is, you know, can be, is very great because you're not going to really be prosecuted probably. I mean, possession is like an infraction. But if you're distributing marijuana, you still have a problem. And it really like represents the hallmark of what's going on in our courts is marijuana prosecutions. And it's because people have the illusion that it's legal. It's really a defense. Like self-defense is a defense um, to murder, you know, or to killing or to the unlawful killing mm-hmm. of another. In the same way, um, you know, there there can be a defense for medical marijuana sales, but the reality is is that everyone thinks it's legal, and yet in the courtroom, the district attorney interprets the law in the most narrow way possible, and this not only affects people locally who are getting prosecuted, um, but it also affects the way and has, I think, allowed the federal government to come in very strongly in California because the federal government's always said that they want to prosecute people who are not following state law. But when the DAs locally are interpreting state law so narrowly, it's allowed the feds to come in, even in cases like some of ours where everyone is really um, doing as much as possible to conform with state law. It's because the DAs have so narrowly construed the law. It's almost... Maybe I'm a moron, but it's almost fucking confusing because it's like, hey, you it's the dirty big secret of the criminal justice system, the state, the local and federal system. I I bet like right now that marijuana encompasses the majority of what the DA is handling and they're like making money off it. I mean, just this week, the DEA seized is now seizing property throughout California. And that's like so that's somewhere where actually for the former administrations haven't even gone before, except for I think there was one. Um, in, in 2000, I believe the federal government took over a building in West Hollywood um, that had been used for medical marijuana dispenser, but that was the only time that that had happened. There have been threats, but right now there is a massive effort by the federal government to seize property, which is, you know, that's, that's somewhere they haven't gone before to actually seize property from landowners. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if they seize the property, then pretty much the federal government owns that property? So like if they seize a farm in Humboldt? Correct. But sometimes what the federal government's been doing is they ju- they've been raiding dispensaries and essentially just stealing everything, stealing all the marijuana, stealing all the money they have, any other property, and then just going up the street to the next one and robbing them blind as well. And sometimes they'll also prosecute people criminally, but sometimes maybe they find it more efficient just to go from place to place stealing everything. Well, and, no, when you know. say stealing, what are they, then what are they, because like the cops in my neighborhood when I was a kid who would steal our firecrackers and weed, and then you'd see them in their backyard setting off firecrackers and smoking weed. <laughs> well, yeah. well, as I use the word steal. It's under the asset forfeiture laws, but that's basically what asset forfeiture is, is stealing money or property from people who they believe are involved in the drug trade. And they think that any money that these people have ever touched is somehow belongs to the government because they're affiliated with what they believe is the illegal drug trade. It's fucking perplexing that they're... So the DEA is 
that's the number one thing right now is weed, not cocaine or heroin, which if I, I mean, everybody I know is jacked out of their nut on coke these days. I, it's very strange. Well, during, you know, I, you know, that's kind of like what happens during a recession in the United States is that everyone starts doing cocaine. That's what happened also during the 80s. But for some, I mean, at least the cases we see, we see like mostly marijuana cases after marijuana. What we've seen is like heroin cases. Um, and at least in the last year, that seems to be at least what we are seeing in our practice. Um <laughs> But it does seem to be, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, the people who, become, I guess the modern day people who are involved with narcotics enforcement, many of them happen to be, it appears to us at least in large part, of course, there's exceptions, but, you know, they're people who don't want to go after violent criminals. They want to have like an easy job and they want to be able to sometimes, you know, take the products. I mean, it's not a universal but it seems it's an attractive to people who are, you know, lazy and immoral. I think marijuana cases in federal court especially, are, they're sort of becoming front and center because it's alarming to the federal government that people are doing this so openly now that they're just opening up a storefront, putting out ads and essentially selling marijuana. Who is offended the by this, though? Everybody I fucking know smokes weed. Well, see, I think that's the thing. I, I mean, my, my kind of opinion about it is that I think it's politically problematic for Obama to be doing what he's doing because he relied upon getting people who are formerly disenfranchised liberals into the voting booth. And now people are pissed. Like, I don't even want to donate a dollar. There was this recent, you know, we get these emails all the time. There was this party at George Clooney's house that you just had to donate $2 to get a chance to go to. And because of his policy on, on marijuana, I don't even want to do that. And so I think politically it's strange. I think a must, what a must be is like lobbying political pressure from the pharmaceutical industry because there's no other explanation really. It's not a politically important move. It's not, I don't think there's anybody putting pressure on him for it. So I think it must be, my only, my rationale must be from his end financial and with with respect to the DEA, that's just like an issue of bureaucratic politics. It's an agency that relies upon the seizure of drugs and marijuana happens to be unique in that it smells. So it's an easy way for them to seize product and justify their bureaucracy. Right. But the, the, the final straw in this issue with a lot of people is when the, the feds came and raided what was called Oaksterdam University up in Oakland. Right, that, that was like, last month. right. And it was essentially a place that was just disseminating information, teaching classes to people, and they basically just raided it and took all of their files, and that seems like a real free there speech was, issue. There was no, like, weed on the premises? It was just like, hey, this is how... Well, like I think one of the... the one of the people behind it, Richard Lee, he also had a marijuana dispensary that was separate, but they specifically, from my understanding, raided the university itself and took all of their files uh, just because they were unhappy about the views and the ideas that the university was teaching to the public. Is the is like the ACLU or anybody jumping on board on this, or is it it just I, unless I'm an idiot because I'm a weird recluse sometimes <laughs> who watches a lot of but it's like I feel like there's not well that's why actually um, I started Raza and I are running it are going to run it together although we have to start funding it we have this lobbying group that I incorporated last year that hopefully we can use to try to attack some of these issues because it doesn't seem like there really is any group out there that's really I mean they used to, you know there are many groups relating to marijuana there's normal which is like, you know, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. There's Americans for Safe Access. There's a lot of groups, but no one seems to have been able to put this issue into, I guess, the mindset of politicians who are actually going to vote on it or can do anything with it. Because is it also because there's still sort of like this, to, maybe to middle America, which I don't think is as, con, I, where people are just like, 
still think it's like oh dirty fucking hippie drug or like you or it's I, a gateway drug I all mean, that I, bullshit I, I don't really know I don't think that that's really what's in the hearts of America I think that there is you know the way that Nixon had a silent supposedly silent majority I think we have our own silent majority uh, of people and I think everyone in our country pretty much knows the marijuana is a benign substance I think that it's a matter of candidates tapping into like this collective unconscious um, and I don't think it's a scary issue really I think on the other hand doing what Obama's doing is really you know pulling people away but then he also probably understands that the same people who are offended by it are not going to vote Republican so but I, I don't at the same time I don't think it's even necessarily a left versus right issue anymore I know in the Republican debates this year there were two of the candidates who were vocal advocates of drug legalization and specifically uh, marijuana, marijuana or all drugs uh, marijuana and uh, I know Ron Paul who was running he was he had during the debates he was saying that heroin should be legalized and there was another guy Gary Johnson mm-hmm. who who was in the debates earlier I think he's running as a libertarian now but he was also one of his top issues is uh, marijuana I don't want reform. heroin legal because sell will, it we also I also support at least um, there's a libertarian candidate locally in the 33rd district Steve Colette and um, <coughs> he's having a party for the nonprofit next week but his actual candidacy is premised upon his you know belief that the drug war is a problem and decriminalization and I mean at least my view I think Raza shares this view is that all drugs should be decriminalized and that's because you know to deal with the drug problem or people having problems with drugs is a totally separate issue from whether or not someone should have a felony record and be deprived of their liberty you know whether or not people should um, you know their kids should lose their parents that's not something that at least I believe should result from the use of psychoactive substances so right and I think as a guy speaking personally who's been down some dark rabbit holes with uh, a variety of drugs <laughs> it's like legal or not legal doesn't make a goddamn I mean I can get any drug I wanted to probably with two phone calls and if you people email me I can give you those drugs because <laughs> I got two really good lawyers who would get my ass out of that right that's right and, I, and that goes for minors as well I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, don't, but don't talk. But that's, of course, contingent on not making any statements to the police. That's always what fucks up people's cases. They, 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 yeah. they shoot their mouths off to the yeah, cops? Yeah. That's the- or shall we call them the fucking pigs? <laughs> the fucking man? The oppressor? I've done acid. <laughs> now, do you- well, One of our best... We don't, we don't you know, get that crazy because one of our things I think that we I know, you, know what? you can't talk shit, well, no, but well, I can, piggers. Well, one of the things I think that we're good at is actually kind of articulating the view of the underdog and the counterculture to the establishment so we get very close to saying those things but not quite I think it's interesting too because like marijuana is not a counterculture drug anymore I mean or drugs in general I mean we had Rush Limbaugh a few years ago who was high as shit on Oxycontin do you recall that? yes yeah and it's like a friend of mine pointed out he was like if that would have been somebody on the left like a left uh, uh, spokesman or whatever you want to call them you like they would the Republicans would have been all over it especially if it was like somebody like Chris Rock or something they would have like been like, yeah fucking lefto black guy fucking whacked out on drugs but Rush Limbaugh just kind of gets shoved under the carpeting a little bit and it's like oh and it's how does that happen I guess it was a rhetorical question, really. <laughs> well, I think it has to do with also him. I mean, the idea of prescription drugs is kind of considered, at least right now, to be somehow uh, there's this kind of under there's still this feeling that if a doctor prescribes it, it's OK. And so I think somehow to the culture, that's how we've gotten into this kind of crisis of prescription drugs. So maybe kind of part of. And I, I saw I saw a story in the paper just the other day that there's a 
big wave now of newborn babies being born with withdrawal. I, I saw to, that uh, too. Prescription drugs, and uh, it's it's a real epidemic, I think, nationwide. And there is this mentality that well, because those are prescribed by a doctor, somehow they're better than marijuana. But I think it's the reality is clear that they do a whole lot more damage. Well, and yet people lose their children, by the way, which is really that's one of our other you know kind of. Political missions. People lose their children for testing positive for marijuana when they have children born. And yet, you know, with prescription drugs, their doctor prescribed it. They don't lose their children. They don't have to go into foster care. I would take a wild bet that most of the people in our Congress have smoked marijuana more than once. I would bet. I mean, and I think it's weird that Obama presents himself as this hip, cool sort of president. And he sings uh, soul music on talk shows. I think the reality is some people like using marijuana and some people don't. And neither people on either side really makes their decision based on whether it's legal or not. And by the time everyone's adult, most people know one way or the other. And if people want to use marijuana, they're going to. If, they're, if they want to use prescription painkillers, they're going to find a way to get them. And yeah. the, the legal status of either just simply isn't going to make much of a difference on patterns of usage. I've smoked a lot of marijuana, and I've smoked, a, uh, drank a lot of booze, which is totally legal. And I know which one I've made the worst choices on, and that would be Jameson Irish whiskey. <laughs> you know, it's, it's completely trash. I was thinking about the other day again about this issue of marijuana as a gateway drug, and it's it's so. And I can speak also from personal experience. You never want to. You don't smoke a bowl and then say, "I want to do a fucking line." It doesn't happen, okay? It happens with alcohol. That's it, really. You know, where people then go yeah. together. If you're not doing your, like, substance of, you know, your substance of choice, you're doing alcohol first, that loosens inhibitions to do what other people want to do. It's not, I mean, it's not marijuana. It's the same. The statistic that's used is, like, what percent of people who do hard drugs have used marijuana, but that's like saying what percent of people who do heroin have eaten scrambled eggs, probably, like, what, 99.9%. So the relevant, you know, statistic would be... <laughs> What percent of marijuana users go into harder drugs? And of course, anybody who's interested in psych- in altering their consciousness will probably use marijuana, will use alcohol, and then do their other thing. But that's yeah. I think my doing cocaine had nothing to do with me smoking marijuana. That's right, or anything. It was just more of like that. Why did you cocaine? Young curiosity. Yeah, it was and just and like, I've also what? it I, had nothing. I've encountered a number of people in our line of work who have said that marijuana is essentially sort of a gateway drug in the, in the opposite direction, that they've been involved in harder drugs, that they've been addicted to meth, and that marijuana has been a good substitute to help them get off of that instead of going with this sort of zero-tolerance 12-step program. They've found that by shifting to marijuana, they're able to eliminate or at least cut down a whole lot on their drug problems that are causing a lot more damage to their lives. Do you guys? Oh, yeah, one day I want us to open... I think Ross will be down for this. A medical marijuana-based rehab. That's how we're going to make a lot of fucking money. That's what it... And it's actually the answer. I mean, I'm not... And I kind of... It, it kind of is the answer. I mean, at least I do think for a lot of people that if you, you know, do other drugs, but you tell yourself that you can kind of allow yourself to use whatever marijuana you want and not your other drug, it seems to help quite another people, anecdotally. I agree. Yeah. And I think there's different varying degrees of what addiction is when people talk... Because I've used to drink like a motherfucker. <laughs> like, I mean, I would have Jameson with me lunch and I won't even lie, I've, I tossed it in my morning coffee a few times and by a few, I mean a lot. But but then I stopped drinking for two years and then with last, this past February, I started drinking again and I have no desire to get fucking hand-boned anymore. See, that's also, I think, that's very good and I think that's Thank also you. what our culture misses. <laughs> yeah, well, the reason I think 
in large part, our culture has come to this point, in addition to the criminalization of drugs, is this idea of zero tolerance, sobriety or nothing. Um, at least the way that I see things, I'm more of a belief in like the harm reduction principle that what we need to do is look at an individual, what, how drugs, if they're causing harm to that person and reducing the harm. And what does that mean? That means going from drinking too much, drinking less, not necessarily from all to nothing. And I've actually, now that I've been alert to 10 years, I've seen like people, like 75-year-old people in AA 20 years shooting speedballs and almost killing themselves. That's, in my opinion, what happens oftentimes with extreme behavior. And drug addicts are extreme anyway. So I'm more into the idea of figuring out how to teach people moderation. As but I've, I've also yeah. seen people who have been sort of so ingrained with this concept of zero tolerance that they have been good about staying off of drugs and alcohol, but maybe they'll have one drink at some point and then they'll consider themselves a total failure on their rehab and then they'll just fall into back into their mm-hmm. addiction wholesale yeah. because they think it's either all or nothing and because they've slipped up they're complete failures. I think that's also a very western way like it is. there's no uh, there's no like rite of passage really for a lot of uh, American like you know like a lot of cultures are like you now you're a man and for us it's, it's you're 21 get fucked up and it's like we binge drink more than any nation in the world and in Europe like they'll have like a few cocktails with lunch and yada yada but they're not like fucking they don't pound them like we do I think it's I think it's kind of related to the you know beginning of our culture here and the fact of puritanism really being that was kind of what our American culture was based on um, which was obviously very as I call the way. Puritans the first cock blockers because they've really just ruined a lot of good things <laughs> <laughs> So now it's kind of a matter of how, where do we go from here? And unfortunately, I mean, in addition to the law being an impediment, this whole zero tolerance thing is a huge problem. I mean, it causes a lot of grief for people. And just what Raza was saying about the idea that people, they have one drink or they do one thing and now they think that they're slipped back into their addiction and then they that facilitates their going back in because they think of this all or nothing approach. That's unfortunately where our country is at. And they, it's also, it's weird because you say zero tolerance and then there's zero there's also an abstinence. So pretty much all these people want us to do is sit around and uh, sing a bunch of hymns, which is a goddamn good party. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I think abstinence, I don't know who abs. I don't know. I, know, I, I, don't, I don't believe in abstinence. <laughs> I know I don't. I, I think the reality is it's a very personal We'll talk decision. about that further after the show. <laughs> it's a personal issue, I think, for everybody, and everyone has different methods of, for, for getting out of it. And I think having a variety of treatment options available to people instead of just having a one-size-fits-all model. Which is interesting, because when my best. brother was... Uh, this, of course, is in the late 80s when he got busted for dealing cocaine. And uh, he was like on a... I don't know, whatever. He We needed to get him in a rehab center. And at the time, there was... It was funny because Reagan was, they were talking about say no to drugs, but then my brother couldn't get into a rehab center to say, like there was a waiting list, which was due to Reagan cutbacks. And it was like, mm, that's interesting. it was, yeah, and it was like, well, here's a guy who was freebasing and binge drinking at the same time. It's like, he probably could be dead in a month if, we, uh, just uh, the, the hypocrisy yeah. of that. But that isn't a, I don't know. I'm kind of. Right now, kind of, I don't know, I'm a little tarnished off the rehab idea at the moment. Not that I don't believe in the conventional one, but, you know, to put someone into, like, a fantasy land for a month in Malibu and then have them come out into, like, a shitty place where they have access to drugs just doesn't seem, like, very it, realistic true. or helpful. I mean, I, and, I've, and I say this after going through having my own personal issues. I was married to someone who went to rehab, <coughs> and I've been a lawyer for 10 years, so I speak from many angles here. But uh, it just seems like a gimmick. Yeah, and you were also saying that when, to go back to the pharmaceutical thing, which I don't know if we sort of followed. But it's interesting when people think that pharmaceuticals have this 
like we think anybody like doctors or whatever they have our interests in mind like they want us to be healthy and it's like most of pharmaceuticals are drugs are fucking awful like the side effects and they're addictive I had a friend who uh, topped her head off so to speak because she was uh, I forget what uh, antidepressant she was Coming taking mm. but yeah and they, and it's like once you go off of it you actually become more suicidal and that's the, the issue with pharmaceuticals though, there are a lot of people in this country living with severe chronic pain and that is something that no one can really judge them for and if, if the pharmaceutical drugs are providing them some relief for that even if they are addictive and have some side effects that's a very personal decision on whether it's worth alleviating the pain in exchange for some dependence on those pills and some side effects so that they, they may well be the right choice for most people but I think in the end it's a personal decision that someone has to make themselves and it's not the, their doctor's not even necessarily in a position to determine whether it's right for them or not and actually you know it's interesting that Raza says that because as of like a century ago in the, in the early you know until the 1920s in our country a doctor was responsible for maintaining an addict like you know if you were a drug addict you go to your doctor for any you know whatever you needed heroin or cocaine or whatever and that was something between a doctor and a patient and and it's also, I think, interesting what Raza was saying about how it is a, it's like up to the patient, like a doctor. A lot of times we go to these, for example, even the medical marijuana situation, we're in court and the person has chronic pain and it's not like, and the, and the DA tries to take apart what that means, but it's really the person knows you can't test for it. You can't, um, you know, there's nothing you can do to really objectively analyze it. And why isn't it like our right as just a human being to alleviate our pain in whatever way we choose? And of course, I think that also extends to altering our consciousness, but you know, it really is a human right to alleviate pain or to think how we want, as long as those little ingredients don't somehow cause violence to other people. And there's no known drug that's out there, as far as I know, that causes someone to commit violence. So PCP, maybe. Well, not really. No, it doesn't even. You know, it's funny if you've ever read um, the best book on this, Dr. Andrew Wheel from the 70s, From Chocolate to Morphine, a classic book. And in that book is the story of the PCP jogger. And this is the story for exactly a comment like yours, because I used to think, oh, except for PCP. No, not true. I just know that dancers in my neighborhood as a kid, the guy would take PCP and climb up trees and jump out. <laughs> well, you know, the other people who know how to use it, because part of the, as Dr. Wheel talks about, and this is from Timothy Leary, the part of the drug experience is just the pharmacology it's the set the setting and the pharmacology True. so the set and setting are what your emotional state is what's around you and if you take you know I'm not something I want to do but in this book at least the PCP jogger knows how what he's doing he takes his PCP and he's in the right mindset and he goes for a jog so it's really there is no drug that causes and there's just little anecdotes by him etc and that's not the only time I've heard of it but you know every drug is dependent on these other factors. It's just that we don't teach people properly about drugs. We teach them that it's like cocaine does this and heroin does this, this whole idea of set and setting, moderation, knowing what you're doing. All those things that are like kind of part of actually doing drugs, we don't teach about because we're all focused on the say no mentality. So that's true. And I think it kind of goes back to the core problem of, of a lot of our issues in this country is education. Like with sex pro you know like teen pregnancies and all those things it's like no one is offering any educational solutions or you were saying like pain it's like nobody gives alternative anything you know like I, I have f fucked up body stuff from getting hit by two cars in a year that's me bragging by the way and I started doing yoga which I stopped but <laughs> and went right back to eating mass amounts of red meat but for that brief period like I felt way better and mentally and and physically and people just think just throw you should get a recommendation for marijuana pardon me you should get a recommendation for marijuana maybe 
You mean like a like a prescription? Yeah. Oh, I got weed in my house, I, honey. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean honey to be condescending because you're smarter than That's I'll ever bad. be. I just meant it as a gag. That's good. That's fine. I, I know. I just don't want you to think I disrespect women because I honor and obey. You know, I just honor women. You should see the types of people we're around. I appreciate that. <laughs> Look, I've read Andrea Dworkin. How many guys can say that? And I've been published in feminist magazines. So I that's my that's com- bust, bust magazine. Back in the old bust, though. Do you know bust? I don't know bust. It was very big in the 90s. My friend Marcel Karp used to mm. publish it. It was like one of the first feminist hip magazines. Well, those, you know, back in the 90s when I first worked on this issue was in college and uh, kind of was like the beginning of the internet. But I used to get all these in order. I did my thesis at Columbia on um, legalization movement and why legalization hasn't succeeded yet. But what I did was I got very into these. There actually are these little cultures of drug users. And back in the day before the internet, they used to have their own zines, like little magazines. And I actually got them from all around the country as part of my primary research. Like they even have like IV drug using, you know, little, their own little magazine pamphlets and stuff. Anyway. No, it, it's weird. There was a whole culture of and dispensing information. Now, do you mm-hmm. do you both smoke weed? Can yeah. you say that? Yeah, I mean, I've said it. I've said it on the cover of the California Bar Journal, so I think it's okay to say. Yeah, and our current governor Jerry Brown is, I'm pretty sure, was doing a lot of coke with Linda Ronstadt back in the seventies. <laughs> Probably throwing some three three ways around. <laughs> yeah, but now he's acting. I don't know. Is he being a big dickwad about this? No, I, well, um, he's just not coming. Well, basically, in the beginning, the attorney general's office seemed to support the view that, you know, the view of, you know, dispensing marijuana, distribution of marijuana, and they had guidelines for it. And he, he was the one, he was one of the leaders in establishing these guidelines, supposedly giving people a checklist of what they needed to do to operate a dispensary properly. But now it's, now it's of course, in the end, bullshit, because just, you know, when you go look at the case law, the attorney general has come to take the district attorney's position, which is very ironic because it's completely contrary to their own guidelines. Um, and unfortunately, Jerry Brown has, like, really been disappointing in other ways. I mean, here he was supposed to be, you know, he was really came from these left roots, and yet... Um, several years ago when there was again back to three strikes um, but several years ago there was a campaign to take residential burglary off the, off the three strikes list because residential burglary is a non-violent so let's say your freaking friend is a heroin addict and steals a necklace from your house that would be a, considered a residential burglary mm-hmm. okay so there was a move to take that off the list to you know in the interest of justice and Jerry Brown came out right before the election as a former you know as a politician against the change with all these um, horrible predictions that the criminals would be on the street and in the end he's been really a disappointment and he's just gone along with you know the kind of district attorney position or the right kind of wing position on these issues it's hard to find any politicians I think who are successful ones who have really made a a big had a lot of success with standing up for marijuana issues because it seems like once they become entrenched it's it's just they fall into the the Bureaucracy and the current framework, and, and it's hard for them to change things, so they just get frustrated and end up going along with the way things have been done for decades. And I mean, really, if I mean, I think that in the, at least right now, and I've and I kind of did predict this even back in my thesis. I'm very happy it's coming true. <laughs> that <laughs> it's going to be a huge issue, and the person who takes 
this issue to say this is like the biggest human rights violation that are internally within our country that we are committing every day is locking people up for marijuana for drugs. Whoever takes is going to be like, I think, one of the heroes of our century. And they'll be looked at later on as someone who changed something that was was the biggest human rights issue. I mean, when you think about smoking marijuana and then you think that someone who delivers you that marijuana could be in this a fucked up jail cell um, with like, you know, sharing a bathroom with a bunch of people, maybe not able to bail out of jail. Oh, know, if I got raped for some carrying some weed, I'd be pretty and pissed that's, off. And that's what happened. I mean, just as a recent thing, I mean, right. that's actually the position we're in right now this last week at UCSD. This kid went to his fraternity house to get high on 420. And five days later, he's now suing the federal government for $20 million after they uh, locked him up without food or water for five days. Right. You know, he was drinking his own urine. And now there's evidence that they did it on purpose. They did apologize. No, but apparently, on his, apparently I heard his NPR interview that he said when he came out, they were like, oh, here's your water finally. Like they knew he was there. They, oh, so they, because they were playing dumb at first. Here's your yeah, water. Apparently what they the knew fuck he was is, there. I mean, that's, that's insane. You know, in America. But it actually, it epitomizes kind of, it kind of epitomizes the whole everything, you know? Right. It just, the, the whole the whole system, it dehumanizes people involved in marijuana and they get sucked into the, the system. That's their exposure to the criminal justice systems because of marijuana and a lot of them become sometimes more hardened criminals because of the what they're faced with and the type of people they deal with um, and getting lumped into. I would drink my urine bodies. for five days for $20 million, but... Now you were saying, if anyone wants to arrest me for five days, but you now you were saying it's a human rights issue. Now, like I'm sure there's a lot of yayas out there who go like, it, but it's against the law, <laughs> and like how, which well, I mean it is, and how so, what do can I you think? explain how I can it do is it. a yeah? I can't. I mean, I'm I'm a, I agree oh, with sure. you. I, no, this is the deal. Okay, well we have like a we have a bill of rights, right? And the bill of rights says that if here's our freedoms, and if these freedoms aren't otherwise articulated, they're inherently considered to be freedoms unless they're prohibited okay our first amendment right is a right to free speech and we have other rights that include you know the right to liberty and the right to pursue happiness well i would imagine that the right to freely speak is predicated on our right to freely think and doing drugs is no more an act other than thinking freely or altering your consciousness so i think that we have an inherent right to alter our consciousness i mean it's like, you know, it's like saying you can't eat. It's, it's, it's basically depriving people of plants that are on, like grown on the earth is to, you know, criminalize marijuana. So I think that it's something that's predicated on our First Amendment. And, you know, we always we have information that like, you know, Tom, I mean, that George Washington grew marijuana. Our U.S. Constitution was was done on hemp paper. Is that is that a fact? These are facts. Okay. I mean, of course, I wasn't there. But as far as I know, that the, they're Taking supposedly, acid, these are you supposedly could be. facts. And um yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, you know, it wasn't until 1970 and the Controlled Substances Act that the government even um, kind of felt, you know, whatever you can say the government felt, but that there was even kind of a national justification for the regulation of drugs. Before then, all we had was like the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, which was like the law before 1970 that controlled marijuana. And the idea that now the federal government can not only regulate it, um, that's like a new idea from the 20th century. Right. Now, do you, what was the turning point like where, because in the 50s and 60s, I mean, well, the training, was oh, interesting. Well, here's the turning point with the Controlled Substances Act was, so here we had before the 30s, like no drugs were criminalized. And then we had a lot of, um, basically marijuana became associated with Hispanic people and there was a lot of racism. Um, there was a hearing held in Congress in the 30s relating to marijuana. And after like one, actually the American Medical Association. It was around that time that Reefer Madness movie came right. out. Right. That's true. And at the, at the hearing on marijuana... Um, to for the 1937 Tax Act, which was like basically the first official 
uh, criminalization federally of marijuana. There was one person who testified and they were from the American Medical Association and said marijuana was good. And that was it. And then they ended up criminalizing it basically by saying, but I mean, it's, they said actually under the federal tax act, that you had to pay a tax on it. And then what happened was in 1969, Timothy Leary was going in between like the states and somehow got busted for like one joint. And he argued that, you know, he got busted saying that he hadn't registered for this tax. And he argued that the marijuana tax act, because it made you say that you were using marijuana was actually a violation of the fifth amendment because all the states had criminalized marijuana by this point. So the government struck down that act and then it came up with this national drug control, the controlled substances act. But it's been a, there's still challenges going on as to whether the government has a right to intrude into these areas, the federal government specifically. Those are helicopters above us now. (laughs) We're uh, being raided. And (laughs) what's the deal with that? Speaking of that, you know that Obamacare, did that get decided yet? Because that's a case if it's decided against Obama could be it could be helpful for us, right? Yeah, there was a lot of the recent dispute. Uh, there was a case that went to the Supreme Court a few years ago about whether the federal government had a right to regulate people growing marijuana in their own backyards, basically, and just selling it within a state. And they justified it based on the interstate commerce clause, saying that that was a part of their ability to regulate commerce among the states. And essentially, the Commerce Clause, they interpreted it so expansively that they said it covers basically any conduct that occurs anywhere. It gives the federal government a right to come in, control it, and regulate it. And even if a state has rules to the contrary, the federal government's rules automatically trump those. So the the marijuana case that went up to the Supreme Court, it basically says, yes, the feds have a right to do this because it's part of commerce. And therefore, they have a right to tell the states to go to hell. So if I'm growing weed in my backyard... The uh, the cops or the feds are like it's commerce and they can bust me. That, that that's that's their justification that well even if you're just using it yourself or you're selling it to someone up the street that it ultimately it has some effect on interstate commerce because some other transaction somewhere else would it's supply and demand and it's all part of a, a nationwide market so that's their that's justification. That's fucking crazy. I mean it, it is crazy. Right? But it came yeah but it came from the weird and kind of I mean it came from very non marijuana related roots the expansion it's very it's this is just. Kind Kind of an example of how you know the expansion of laws can have on you know consequences that were anticipated so the expansion of interstate commerce occurred in like the 30s with the new deal administration and what happened was roosevelt wanted to pass a lot of new deal laws and start regulating different types of industries to help the depression and to do that the supreme court started loosening up based on there were challenges to those new deal administration policies um and and the supreme court ruled that the nation had an interest in this commerce so they started expanding the idea of interstate commerce and then throughout um, the 80s there was some restriction of this idea so by the time this case came down in like 2003 to the Supreme Court we thought oh it's possible that you know we could say marijuana is intrastate California only but unfortunately the Fed said differently that it affects the overall market in the country but it, it was an issue during the civil rights era as well when uh, there were local establishments that were discriminating against black people restaurants hotels that type of thing and they were saying no the feds can't step in because these are just local establishments doing local things but there were some precedents then saying well that affects interstate commerce and I think that's that's the same justification that's being used for marijuana now but um, the the problem is the federal government can be used for a, a force for good or for evil or for conservative or liberal policies. And when there's so much power given to the federal government and no limits on that power, it can turn into tyranny, basically, if there's no check on the, the limits to where they can go. 
And I mean, I think that the way that we would distinguish, I mean, it's and it's so obvious how to distinguish this from the civil rights that just like Rob was saying, where the government gives more rights to people, that's acceptable. When the government's entrenching rights, it's not. So just that that's why you can reconcile, you know, the marijuana issue with, let's say, civil rights, because in that in that context, it's the federal government stepping in to prevent states from restricting rights. That's a different situation than, you know, the federal government coming in to really like hammer rights. And what's going on now is really, really insane. I mean, we have like the state law, which tells you you have a affirmative defense to do certain activities, which is collectively associate to cultivate marijuana. And just last week, we had a really scary thing happen where the very testimony used for someone's defense is now being used for the federal government as the basis of a search warrant. And, you know, whereas the federal government has said that these two laws can be reconciled, that the state can still decriminalize um, basically for certain uses and the federal government can still have jurisdiction. I think that... Um, now, given the pattern of conduct by the feds where they're literally taking testimony using state court, I think that now it shows that these two can't be reconciled because if the feds are going to be using the very thing that liberates you to incriminate you, there is a conflict, you know, and that's why it's been our position also. It gets very complicated, but it's been also our position that for the state issue that when we go to court, we shouldn't have to put on much evidence to defend somebody because if that evidence can be used to also incriminate them in another jurisdiction, it's not fair. So it's always been our position that we should just have to basically assert our client's recommendation that they're a medical marijuana patient and not have to have them testify I was growing for X and Y and he was a patient because that same testimony can be used by the There are actually some cases that that happen in state court where the district attorneys will basically say, well, if you keep fighting this in state court, we're just going to refer to the federal government, put the case there, and people have no medical marijuana defense there, and they're subject to these five and 10-year right. mandatory minimums. So we've it, even been, we've even been threatened position. once. Like one time we had a case in Butte County up um, near Fresno where it's kind of well-known the U.S. attorney there is one of the more active on this issue, Benjamin Wagner. And we had a case where these two brothers were being charged in state court, each of them with like 350 plants. And the U.S. attorney wrote a letter to the DA, which was forwarded to us saying, if these guys don't plead out the first day of court, and this is rare, but this happened, then we're gonna actually have the marshals there, they're gonna come in and we're gonna take them away. And like, they wouldn't even let us put on a defense. So to say that these two things can be reconciled, they can't. I don't know if Obama doesn't understand that. You know, I don't know if anybody's, that's why I wish we could like somehow break this down to him, say, Obama, this is how it works. Because unless you're actually a practitioner on the street, you know, like the way we are, it's hard to understand the way that these really do conflict, but they do, you know? How long do you think it's going to take for the 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 way you're describing this, like for this to be resolved or move forward, and maybe marijuana become legal? It seems like it's going to be fucking years. Well, people people have been debating these issues over and over for it seems like decades, and we've made some progress now. But it just seems like the same issues, same issues, keep getting regurgitated. Well, the answer is for me and Raza. This is the deal. If Obama hears this, Obama in the next little, next next turn. Okay, <laughs> first of all, Obama, Roz and I both went to Harvard Law School like Obama did. I went to Columbia like Obama too, and all his government homies are the same place. But we should be the drug czars and the new drug czars to like decriminalize drugs. Me and Raza, then we can work on national drug control policy. We could have like a mini court. This is also my fantasy. Then we have like our own miniature court of appeals that actually <laughs> handles all the habeas corpus cases, everyone who's in custody. So we like, you know, decriminalize everything. And then there's going to be all these people in custody who need to be liberated. And there has to be a special court for that. So that's to be my Raza's little court. And then we can handle all the, you know, all the. But appeals Obama has the power to, <laughs> do to pardon any drug, federal drug uh, prisoners that he wants to. And he also has the power to. 
declassify marijuana right. as a Schedule One drug. He, he's he's made he statements. Could, he, he, he could do. He could have the attorney general he's do made, it. He's made statements yeah. that he can't do anything because Congress has uh, has made them illegal. But that's not true. He has the complete power to reschedule marijuana uh, from Schedule One to a different schedule based on the fact that there's evidence it does have medical benefits. And if he did that, it wouldn't be subject to these draconian. Right, it could be the drug laws. Right, Roz is right. It could be to reschedule a drug. It's either the Congress who could do it or the Attorney General who's under the direct control of President Obama. So he really could do it. That's, you know, it's, he could do it. Maybe he'll do <laughs> that in his fun. last day in office. He'll, he'll think, legalize marijuana and then he'll in, he'll say the death panels are real and then he'll jump on a horse with a sword. That'd be amazing. And kill people. In, the mean, <laughs> in the meantime, I think we should work on, I was, we should work on some pardons. Maybe he can. You know, maybe for like I was thinking, you know, based on his comments recently about this whole how only the recreational people are getting charged and how we have this guy right now serving a year, eight months. His his exposure was 10 years for running a dispensary in federal court. He's serving a year, eight months. But I was thinking we should try to get a pardon for him, even just saying, look, this guy, you know, there's no evidence that this guy was selling to recreational people. Maybe Obama will do something. I, we'll see. Yeah. You have I mean, to try. At least you have to try. First, you have to see it happen. Then you have to try, or else it won't happen. It's so. a, it's amazing, like how because you were saying like a lot of you were, were questioning if it was pressure from pharmaceutical companies. That's why a lot of these busts have been happening. It's like if they legalized marijuana, like the taxes alone. And the things they could do with that tax with our economy in the goddamn shitter as it is. It, It'd be it, fucking amazing. It could save the world. It's just like Jack Queer's book, Emperor well, Wears No Clothes, you know, how hemp can save the world. It can really it really can save the world. Yeah, and that's the other thing then. You got the oil companies because hemp, they don't want hemp because there's petroleum in fucking everything. Shampoo, just to name one. And I'm not going to go any further. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm lazy because of weed. That's not true. Don't, I'm don't put that out there. I clean my house when I'm on weed. Yeah, I don't smoke okay. pot. I, my house is filthy. Just, just as a relevant aside here, the other week I was like, I was just thinking about this issue because for me, I was, I was thinking about how to post this on Facebook that it's hard to be a professional stoner. And what I mean by that, I'm into double entendres, okay? So what I mean by that is that you know, I always feel like I'm one of the few people out there who like admits I smoke pot and yeah, you know, I'm a professional or lawyers and stuff. And it's hard because a lot of times, this is to your comment, you know, our, our clients who may not see themselves in the best way and that's due to the fact that they've been like marginalized, they know like that I smoke and then they don't see themselves very well so they may project their own issues or insecurities onto, you know, us because we're, I'm a vowed stoner and they have their own issues. So I don't like to project this the lazy stoner I'm a very hyper stoner I was I was kidding okay, about that but I, I too like what you were saying about it's environment and stuff I think a lot of people who get stoned and play video games they're just fucking depressed and it doesn't and matter there's a it lot of people mean, who are lazy and depressed to start out with and because of that they'd like to sit around smoking a lot of marijuana but whether the marijuana caused any of the laziness right I've been no, depressed and lazy since 1968 see like you know marijuana <laughs> is like other drugs it's not like a stimulant or depressant it will go along with what, how you're feeling you know if you want to go for a hike and you smoke a bowl you're gonna have a sick fucking hike. You just have to bring a little extra water. Right. And if you're tired, you're gonna go to sleep. And that's why it's and an booze. amazing. That's why it's fucking amazing. But if you fucking drink first, you're gonna throw up. Booze makes you more. <laughs> yeah. And no, no one drinks some Jameson and goes on a hike. No, exactly. <laughs> or surfing. That's right. <laughs> uh, and if you smoke a lot of pot opposed to drinking a lot of booze, like booze, you're gonna have more likely uh, unprotected sex and a herpes scare. Where weed, you don't do that so that's much. True. It's a better. I just smelled my microphone. So, uh, is there any, um, uh, how do people get in touch with you if they have, uh, 
weed issues, marijuana issues. Do you have a website and a phone number that you could give us? You know, us? it's fine. We're both looking at each other because we're like a little unsure of like the website. Like, does it have an and in the middle or not? We have to check that as we're discussing That's it. That's okay. Well, here's our phone number is 323-653-9700. And just if you Google Margolin and Lawrence, you'll find us. It's like we're like, we know all this stuff, but we can't remember our website. It's something like margolinlawrence.com or margolinandlawrence.com. I'm not sure. Are you from the East Coast? No, I'm from here. I'm oh, you are? Okay. Where are you from? I, was, I grew up in Wisconsin myself. Oh, he's from Dustin. Where are you in from Wisconsin? Uh, Madison, Wisconsin. He's from fucking Madison. Oh, that's cool. You guys can get some Java afterwards. And I referred to Dustin. What high school did you go to? Uh, I went to a chartered school. Oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> I'm from Chicago. Oh, yeah. cool. Where booze is... That's, uh, that's Chicago. I was a, a I was a chair a bit uh, south, at Northwestern one summer. Oh, were you? Yeah, I was. I was a journalist and that's what matters. You're a very accomplished woman. You went to Harvard and Columbia. I went to Columbia undergrad. Yeah, God damn. Harvard Law School. You got. Uh, like, and I'm a professional stoner every day after you're, court you're though, only. Right. I know some of the people I know who achieve the most in the world smoke a lot of. My friend Michael Connell. I tease him about how much weed he smokes, but he like the guy is phenomenally productive. And Woody yeah. Harrelson, yeah, who invented his own strand of uh, weed. Did you know that? Which I have in my no, home. I'm not, he's, I know he's like somewhat of a, a proponent of legalization, but like he's also you know well back in the day when it wasn't as popular, he was wavering. He was just talking about hemp to try to like distance himself a little bit from marijuana thing, but that's okay. Right. And, but that was the also just to backtrack because yeah. there was a period where it was like all right everyone's finally given up and like or not given up but like given in and been like all right weed's not a bad thing let's everyone well, seemed relaxed for see, a little period what happened, that, well what happened was like historically in the seven you know in the 70s a bunch of states had decriminalized including this madison wisconsin which is the sickest place ever where Roz is from I've been there where they have you know like less than an ounce is actually totally decriminalized in the in the home but in, if you're outside in public less than an ounce is like a hundred dollar fine no criminal penalties but what happened was there was this big scandal in the late 70s between um, the Surgeon General of the United States and the head of normal some kind of thing with and, and the Attorney General at the time who was very sympathetic to normal had some big problem involving some type of his own drug scandal and so that combined them with the kind of backlash um you know, for, like in the early 80s, created problems. And then, actually, that's how the kind of cocaine epidemic started was because they started scaling back on the marijuana thing. Like, marijuana enforcement became more um, increased. They started doing these paraquat sprays on the marijuana in the late 70s. And then, of course, we have the cocaine epidemic because people can't use a lighter substance. They'll just take what they can. And, you know. I think in Los Angeles, in the past few years, it has become even more normalized marijuana use where people smoke it on the streets to, with more dispensaries out in the open, that it, it is becoming just a part of regular life. And the same time, the crime rates in Los Angeles have been going down less violent crime as more dispensaries have been popping up everywhere. And I, I do think it makes sense there would be a relationship there that the more people, the more gangbangers are out there smoking weed instead of getting drunk, the less they're going to be out Killing people. True. That I don't know how familiar you are with the wire, but in the wire there was a thing where they had Hamsterdam, where they made the drug dealers work within a couple blocks, which is actually a thing they did in Baltimore for a brief. Hmm. The, the way it went down, and it was you know all That's the good crime. For everyone. Pardon me. That's good for everyone. Yeah, and it was like they said, here are the blocks you can deal. Great. That's in. a good idea. Let's do it. 
Uh, do you have any other information you want to give out? Did you get the well, website? If anybody, yeah, if everybody, if anybody also is interested in our nonprofit, um, we have already like a lobbying group and it's going to be different than the other groups because we hope to, you know, put forward decriminalization policies. But once we get money together, we actually hope to like lobby candidates the same way as other people on the right lobby candidates, meaning get money together and donate towards candidates in order for them to hopefully kind of, you know, reach out on our issues. So if in the end, politicians us, really care about donations and right. people who are calling them with problems so if people right. can mobilize on these issues that that can make a difference are and, there any yeah. possible politician like I know you There's said this, yes, so Steve Collette who we're right, um, supporting he's a libertarian candidate and he's running for um, Congress for the 33rd district on this issue and this is the, really the kind of issue that lobbying can really help with because see like the way that issues I, are decided on is you know either local or national and I, I saw just just a couple of days ago, Nancy Pelosi came out with a statement criticizing the federal government's recent crackdown on medical marijuana. So, and she's obviously had a, a very high profile position. So there are there are some national politicians who are open to these ideas, and to be able to encourage them to go forward with these statements, I think, can be a really positive thing. So if you have any desire to donate towards that, and then uh, we're also in the process of getting incorporated like a nonprofit. Um, a foundation aspect to it, which would be kind of a group that would hopefully do studies eventually that would posit, like, how can we change the position of police officers, people are currently, you know, like, because what Roz is saying is, like, kind of the epitome of the situation. We have less violence and more marijuana dispensaries, and that's why the police are getting crazy, because they don't know what the fuck to do. So, because, you know, nobody's really, no academics are really out there studying, like, how are we going to reform and change, you know, police structures so that we can, like, put them into, like, a rehabil- you know, a different type of job, or how would a police job's look in a society that doesn't have drugs criminalized so we kind of have to do that and get that going before we can get the obviously support of law enforcement because now they just see it as a zero-sum game they have no herb no money then they don't have a job and that's you know obviously one of the biggest forces involved in keeping the status quo so call us if you have any problems or want to change the world let's change the world everybody thank you very much guys it was really <laughs> thank you. awesome thank and you. informative. been a lot of fun you're both smarter than i'll ever be uh, I want to thank you guys for listening and I say guys because I'm from Chicago and we refer to all people as guys um, that was a really awesome show uh, and the theme music by the way is by Les Blanks a Los Angeles band find them out there on Bandcamp and on other various just google Les Blanks they're uh, one of the best bands they're great live too check them out though they're recording right now uh, and uh, please uh, go to the website and donate to my show um and also donate, you know, just so you don't feel like it. I feel like a total weirdo. Also donate to uh, Reza and Allison's uh, weed defense thing there. But donate to my show. It's going to help me buy some equipment so I can go uh, on the road and interview people in other parts of the state and uh, buy some of that equipment and uh, buy some weed so I can stay true to the theme of the show. And if you're going to buy something on Amazon, like I bought, uh, uh, what did I just buy? I bought Uncle Buck the other day. So go... If you're going to do that, go through our website and buy it on the Amazon. Click on the Amazon link and buy all your Amazon purchases there. I get a little kickback from that, and it can go back into our show and making a better quality show for your listening. So please do that. And uh, I want to again thank you for listening, and go to feralaudio.com and support all the other great shows that are going on here. I think uh, I'm humbly say we're going to change the fucking world. Thank you.